Back in Mark chapter 1 again this morning, as we continue to move through this wonderful gospel, Mark's account of the gospel of Jesus Christ and His earthly ministry, just to remind us a little bit of where we have been. We have seen Jesus in the beginning His earthly ministry as He goes out and proclaims this message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news, the good news that is the gospel. And he goes and he calls out his first disciples. He says, come follow me. And of course, this was a call to essentially be his apprentices, to be his followers, to learn from him, to follow after him and to do and be what he has called them to do and be, to imitate him in his life. That was the call and they followed after him as he began his public ministry, he goes and begins teaching in the synagogue, and he teaches as one with authority. And this is where the theme of authority that we see in these early chapters begins to be unfolded. Jesus establishes himself as a unique being on earth. His teaching astonishes the people. This is not just one of our regular rabbis. These rabbis, they get up and they teach just according to what other rabbis have taught. That's what the scribes did, rather. The scribes, they just said, oh, this is what these different rabbis taught. No, Jesus gets up and he does not borrow authority from previous rabbis. No, he speaks as though he has authority in himself. For indeed, he does. But that moment is interrupted by this demon-possessed man, and Jesus rebukes him and says, Be silent and come out of him to the demon, and the demon must obey. We talked last week about how there's the different conceptions about how you needed to gain mastery over the demonic realm, how you had to say particular words, you had to get the demon to say its name, and you had to maybe utter certain incantations, etc., to get control over the demon to cast it out. And that was the popular belief of the day. But Jesus here doesn't do any of that. He simply speaks, and the demon must obey because he is Lord over all. Jesus establishes himself as one who has authority. And that's the response of the people. They're amazed. Oh, what is this, they say, a new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And so the fame begins to spread around. And that is where we pick things up today with the continuing of this story. Immediately after these events transpire within the synagogue, he he speaks, he teaches, the people are amazed at his teaching. He casts out the the demon, the people are amazed at that as well. well. He departs from the synagogue and goes immediately into the house of Simon and his mother-in-law. So let's pick things up now where we see Jesus continuing to establish himself as one with authority and how that unfolds for us today. Jesus is a man with authority both over the physical and the spiritual realms. Mark chapter 1, verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began 
to serve them. Here we see that Jesus has authority over physical illness. And we must remember that this was still the Sabbath day, right? They, they, he was in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He departs from there, and the custom was in those days, after you had your gathering place in the synagogue, that you would retire to a nearby family member's house so as you weren't traveling too far, right? Because that's part of the rules, at least as the Pharisees set things up. They had their particular rules. You can't travel beyond so many steps. You can't do so many things because it's the Sabbath day. Well, this is what they were observing, and so they... They went back together to Simon's house and where his mother-in-law was. They lived close by, and so this is where they went. And immediately we encounter a crisis moment. Simon's mother-in-law is sick. It says that she is ill with a fever. Now, in those days, the concepts of their understanding of what fevers were and illnesses were, they were a little bit different. Of course, we understand today that there is some germ or there's some virus that's causing some kind of illness, and the fever is merely a symptom of that illness, right? Well, back in those days, they viewed the fever itself as the illness, right? That was the thing that needed to be addressed. The fever itself was the illness and not just a symptom. And additionally, they viewed the illness as a judgment from God. If you were ill, it was because of a judgment from God. We read uh, in portions of the law that if you follow after the Lord and live according to His law, that you would live in accordance and that you would have good life, you would have good health, and all these great things would come upon you. And that if you departed from the Lord, you departed from His word, then there would be trouble upon the land. That was the covenant that God made with his people. And so the people interpreted this concept of this illness that they experienced as God's judgment upon an individual. And if a fever is God's judgment, then only God could take it away. No one else can intervene. It must be the work of God to take it away. And that understanding only adds great significance to the implications of the events that are about to unfold here in this text. And, and you can imagine, if you had this conception, you had this understanding that, that the fever is the illness itself, and you're, furthermore, you're understanding that this is the judgment of God upon an individual, that would have been concerning for a family, would it not? Simon, his mother-in-law, she has fallen ill, and oh, what, what has she done? <laughs> what has happened that she has done this And so they come and they tell Jesus, it says, uh, they immediately told him about her. Now that just makes a question pop up in my mind, why? Why would they speak to Jesus about this? At this point, Jesus has not conducted any miracles beyond casting out the demon. He's not healed anyone yet. And yet here they are, informing Jesus. And I can't help but wonder what was it that they were expecting. Was just the fact that they saw Jesus cast out that demon enough for them to believe that Jesus could do something more? Or were they just telling him in hopes that, hey, maybe maybe because he's a rabbi, you know, he could say something about this that they didn't know, they didn't understand, and maybe they could teach something about this? Or was this... Uh, more like a, like a veiled request. Like, hey, 
you know, so-and-so sick over here. And then just the expectation is, oh, I guess I'll come and heal her. Well, whatever the case may be, whatever is going on within their minds in this moment, I think this is a great moment where we see the great personal compassion of our Savior in this moment. Look at what it says he does with her. In verse 31, he says, He came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her. He takes her by the hand. There's a couple of things that this signifies for us. One, that taking her by the hand is making it very clear that this healing that occurred is Jesus' action. Right? This is something that Jesus was doing. This wasn't just a coincidence. It just, it just so happened that when Jesus came to the house, that's, that's when the fever broke and, and she was okay again. It's like, no, there is a direct connection between the actions of Jesus and the breaking of the fever and her being healthy once again. Jesus wants it to be clear that he was the one who healed her as he takes her by the hand. Second, I do believe that this shows us a very personal touch of compassion for others. Again, Jesus didn't, didn't need to actually physically touch her to heal her, right? I mean, he could just say the words, he could just think the thoughts and she would be healed. If we think of other points in uh, different places in the Gospels when individuals come to Jesus and say, hey, my, my servant is, is sick and he's way over there in the house. You don't even have to come, just say the word and he will be healed. Or Jesus could do that. But he has a very personal, in his compassion, a very personal touch for her. And he takes her by the hand and lifts her up. I don't know how many of you have had experiences with doctors that have really bad, you know, bedside manner. <laughs> like, they just, like, real gruff, real rough. And it's just, it's very apparent in the moment that you're just a job to them, right? You are, you're the project, you're the case, you're the paycheck for them. They're doing their job, and that's, that's all that's going on in the moment. Jesus doesn't come across that way. Simon's mother-in-law is not just a hurdle for him to overcome. She's not just a project in front of him. She's, she's not just another sick sinner on his way to the journey towards the cross. No, he cares for her. He approaches her with compassion and gentleness. He cares and, and heals her and raises her up. And, and she gets up and text says she begins to serve. He, he lifts her up. The fever left her and she began to serve them. That's a statement about the thoroughness of the healing. When we're sick and we have a fever and that fever breaks, we do feel better, but we're not instantly 100%, right? No, we're still weak. Our, our, our bodies have been battling with this virus that has been going on, and so we're, we're beaten down by this illness. But when Jesus heals, he doesn't just drive the fever away. He completely restores her strength. He completely rejuvenates her so much so that she is fully restored in full strength to be in serving and entertaining her guests for the evening once again. This is an amazing moment and, and we can become almost desensitized to these stories as we're reading through the Gospels. Like, oh yeah, here's Jesus. He's healing another person up there he goes again. He's healing another person again. But this is really a powerful moment 
when we think about the significance that Jesus has just done something that they believed only God could do, right? If a fever is the judgment from God, then only God could take that away, and Jesus has just done that. That's a powerful moment in the life of Jesus as He establishes His earthly ministry, establishing that He is operating with the power of God, that He is operating and He has authority even over physical illness. Well, that was a private miracle, but in the next verses, things begin to go public. All right, we're about to see a number of people, are, they're going to come to the house. And, and I, there's part of me as I'm reading this, it's not entirely clear from the text as I'm trying to discern what's going on here. If they're responding to the stories that began circulating about him casting out demons in the synagogue, that's almost certainly part of what's going on here because we're going to read that they brought many demon-possessed people to Jesus and he addressed those as well. But I wonder if even the story of, of healing Simon's mother-in-law, if that began to circulate and go out as well because they bring to him all these sick people. Somehow, word has gotten out that there is a healer in their midst. And when there is the power of God and healing in your midst, what do you do? Of course you bring the sick people to him. So let's pick it up in verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Text says that evening at sundown, and that's, that's an important detail for us to remember if we think of the context here. Again, they were in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, right? And on the Sabbath day, as, as we know that Sabbath began at what time? Sundown on Friday and would last until sundown on Saturday. That was the Sabbath day. It didn't begin in the morning. It began in the evening on Friday. And so here they are. Uh, they're, they're waiting for the moment, they're waiting for the sun to go down, they're waiting for the Sabbath to end before they load up all their sick people and bring him to Jesus. They were uh, observing the, the customs of, as far as observing the Sabbath day customs at that time, uh, not traveling too far, not doing too much work, etc. Like the good Jews that they were, they didn't want to break the Sabbath, so they waited for that moment. So they bring all the people to him, and what does he do? He heals them. He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. Picturing the scene is, is got to be a remarkable sight. It says the whole city was there at the door of the house. Like they're just, they're just packed around here. They're all, they're all out there trying to bring the sick people in and Jesus just one by one is healing these different individuals. The demons are being cast out. Notice the language that's used here. It says there's a variety of things that Jesus heals. It says he healed many who were sick with various diseases. Right? Jesus was not just a, just a one-trick pony where he could heal a fever, but he couldn't heal these other things. No, he could heal it all. Like he could address all the maladies, all the infirmities, all the sicknesses, all the things that were wrong with people. He could address all of these things. Because he has authority over the physical realm. Again, 
Here we see the compassion of Jesus. If we think about this would have had to occur at sundown, how late up into the night Jesus would have been bearing with the people and and addressing their needs and, and seeking to heal them late into the night. Healing everyone who came. Jesus has authority over the physical realm. He also has authority over the spiritual realm as well. At the last portion of verse 34, it says he cast out many demons and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Once again, Jesus is demonstrating his authority over the spiritual realm. Jesus has already shown us this, right? We saw this in the last uh, paragraph about Jesus casting out the demon in the synagogue. But here he does it on a much larger scale. It's not just, not just one isolated incident of this one demon-possessed man, but it's many demons were cast out, and each of them silenced by the powerful word of the Lord. Now, there are several questions that can be raised that need to be addressed as we consider this verse and the details that are here. Last week, I failed to address what the details of what are demons even. Like, I just almost assume that we have a common understanding and a common knowledge of what demons are. Scripture tells us that these evil or unclean spirits, these demons, they were once all holy and pure spirits. The demons were once angels that served the Lord. He created them as ministering spirits. Satan himself was also one of God's holy angels. Scriptures tell us that Satan rebelled and he was able to convince many other angels with him to join in his rebellion. And these rebellious angels have become known as demons. They are no longer God's holy angels, but evil, unclean spirits. But... Because they were once God's angels, they certainly would be very familiar with Jesus. They know who he is, and that's what the text says. They knew him. These angels who once would have served Jesus Christ now come against him. But he commands them to depart. Second question that we might ask is, why did he not permit them to speak? Why is there that detail there? He says he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Jesus silenced them because they were aware of who he was. That might seem strange to us. And we actually saw this last week as well, right? When when the, the... the demon was crying out in the synagogue, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Like they, he had a correct understanding of who Jesus was and he was proclaiming that truth. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. Why? Isn't that a bit odd that, that Jesus would, would silence them? I mean, they, they're being truthful. Why wouldn't Jesus welcome their testimony, their true testimony about who he is? This silencing is sometimes called the messianic secret by different commentators and scholars as they study these texts. They, they look at the times that Jesus silenced the demons. And there's also other times, actually, we're going to read here uh, before too long. We're going to read about Jesus 
commanding individuals that he heals of other illnesses and other infirmities, hey, don't tell anyone about this. We're going to see this at the end of chapter 1 just in a little while. Don't tell anyone about this. And yet that individual is going to go out and spread it everywhere. Well, why, why is there this time where, where Jesus is saying, don't tell anyone when Jesus is commanding the demons to be silent and not speak about who he is? There are at least two possible reasons for this. The first is that the source of the information is important. The source of the information is important. Though these demons spoke what was true, Jesus did not want his identity to be revealed by evil spirits. If I could make an analogy this way, if, if I was being introduced somewhere as a true messenger of the gospel, but the person introducing me was someone like you know, Benny Hinn or uh, you know, Creflo Dollar or you know, Kenneth Copeland or, or, or someone like this who we would identify as a false teacher who preaches a false gospel and yet they're introducing me as someone who is a, a true messenger of the gospel of Christ. I don't want to be associated with that individual, right? Like, I don't want that kind of introduction. Even though that introduction may be a true introduction with true words that would be spoken, I don't want to be associated with that individual's message and their conception of what the gospel is. And it's possible that that's what's going on here, that Jesus simply doesn't want demons making know who he is because, not because it isn't true, but because of the source of that information. Jesus wants to establish his own identity in his own way, and so he commands the demons to be silent, and he does not permit them to speak. And in so doing, he's still able to establish his identity through his authoritative actions. Right? These demons are be saying, oh, you're the Holy One of God. And Jesus says, you be silent. And in so doing, he demonstrates that he's the Holy One of God. Jesus establishes his authority by silencing the testimony of the demonic realm. So the source of the information is important, but also the timing. The timing of the information is important. Uh, Jesus was not yet ready to reveal this information for this information to be publicly known about him. Uh, Jesus had much to accomplish in his earthly ministry. There's different points in the Gospels where uh, there would be a moment where it will say something along the lines of, but his time had not yet come, or Jesus will say, my time has not yet come. So Jesus prevents certain information from being made known about himself. He, he doesn't do certain actions because according to his timetable that he himself is establishing, it's not the right moment yet. It's not time yet. That time will come. There will be a time where everyone will recognize and see Jesus for who he is. There will be a time where he will stand before the Sanhedrin. He will stand before that council and they will ask him, are you the, the, the Son of Man? And he says, yes. And you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory. But that moment is not yet. Jesus is still establishing himself and establishing his ministry. Everything must unfold according to the timetable that Jesus himself is establishing. And Jesus ensures that timetable will unfold as he desires by silencing the evil spirits. 
So Jesus will reveal and does ideal his identity in his own way and in his own time. But until then, he commands them to be silent and he does not permit them to speak. What are some things that we can learn from this text? Well, one of the things that we're continuing to we're going to see and continue to see several times over the next several weeks is that Jesus is indeed a man with authority. He is going to demonstrate his authority over various realms, and the the key issue that we must grapple with is this. Why does he have this authority? He's clearly someone with authority. Why is it that he has this authority? Of course, it's tied to his very nature and his being. He is the Holy One of God, and as such, He has authority over all. So the challenge for each and every one of us, every step along the way, is how we will respond to the authority of Jesus Christ within our own lives. Jesus is a man with authority. Second, Jesus shows us what it means to be His disciple. Jesus calls his disciples to follow him, to be his apprentice, to be his learners, to to learn how to do what he does, to learn from him, to imitate him. And later on in, in I think it's chapter 3, we're going to see him commission these disciples to go out and to do the same things that he was doing. So Jesus is preaching the gospel. He's going to commission them out to go out and preach the gospel. Jesus is healing individuals and casting out demons. He's going to commission them to go out and heal people and cast out demons. They're learning from Jesus what it looks like to be his follower and to do the things that he does. A disciple isn't just someone who's just along for the ride, like a fan club or a bunch of groupies who go, ooh, ah, at all the wonderful things that Jesus does. That's not what the disciples are meant to be. A disciple is someone who is to learn from their master the goal is to be to perfectly imitate the master and that is what jesus is showing them of what this looks like as we consider that the third thing that we can say from this text is that jesus cares about the whole person jesus cares about the whole person he cares about the physical suffering of people and he shows mercy to the afflicted now, it's true that, that the purpose of these miracles is to authenticate and demonstrate His authority and demonstrate His person and demonstrate that He is God in human flesh. I mean, that that's true, that that's what those miracles are designed to accomplish. But that doesn't mean He doesn't legitimately care for the people He is reaching as well. There are a whole number of miracles that Jesus did do and could have done that do establish who he is. We think of him walking on the water, calming the storm and the sea and all these different things that he's going to do. That also demonstrates his power and his authority, that he is the Son of God. When he comes and he heals these different individuals, he shows his love and his care for different individuals in their suffering. And when a church gets involved in caring for people's physical needs, often it is called mercy ministry. That's kind of the label that gets attached to that. And over the years, there have been different approaches to these different concepts of mercy ministries and reaching out 
to others that have gone off the rails in different ways. And we want to be careful to strike a very careful balance with these concepts. In our circles, and I would call our, these, at least the circles that I'm a part of, you know, and, and that Pillar Fellowship, we're a, a IFCA Bible church, fundamentalist church, grounded in the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Well, our circles, we typically place a very high emphasis and a very high value on correct preaching and teaching of the Word of God, and rightfully so. That is foundational. That is where everything must begin. We rightly and correctly emphasize the need for correct doctrine, good theology, good at preaching. We study the scriptures. We have our Bible studies. We have our Sunday schools. Our sermons come from the biblical text. We try to unpack it and expound it for us. We teach systematic theologies. We have Bible college and Bible institutes. We do book studies. And these are all good and important and necessary things for us. And even here at Pillar Fellowship, we we share that zeal for rightly understanding the Word of God, for rightly handling the Word of truth. We want people to know the Word of God and so to rightly live by it. That is good, that is right, that is necessary, and there is no other proper foundation. But far too often, that emphasis wrongly comes at the detriment of other avenues of ministry, like things that get called mercy ministries. It's very common in fundamentalist churches to have a neglect for intentional mercy ministry uh, to those around them. And what's more, often in our circles, we can be quick to criticize others who do engage in mercy ministry because by our estimation, hey, they're not doing enough to preach the gospel. Uh, The gospel is the most important thing. And genuinely and truly, the gospel is the most important thing. But we can be very quick to be condemning of individuals who are seeking to meet people's physical needs in the midst of serving others. And so I mentioned the need for the very careful balance in this discussion, and this is where it gets challenging. There was a a movement many years ago that was called the social gospel. The social gospel has done much harm over the years and has taken different forms over the years. But this was a movement that was born out of theological liberalism. This was a movement, theological liberalism was a a movement that began to deny the supernatural aspects of Scripture, deny aspects of things like inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture. Say, well, the miracles, those aren't actually real. They're nice stories, and we learn spiritual truths from them, but they're not actually real historical things. But we learn spiritual things, and so we like Jesus as a teacher. We like the ethic that he taught. And and so this is theological liberalism. Well, as they're reconciling with these different things, out from this becomes this concept called the social gospel. And this movement taught that Jesus did not come to bring personal salvation for your sins, but rather to liberate those who are oppressed by society And thus, the gospel becomes engaging in social action that would result in some improvement in society. So, through this movement, churches began to be engaged in unhealthy ways in different political things. They they abandoned the teaching of the Word of God in favor of, of social talking points. 
And the true gospel of salvation by grace through faith was abandoned. That was a historical movement that many people believed died out for a number of years because it failed to address people's needs, genuine needs. Like even, even we, we, we talk about uh, the social gospel seeking to address people's physical needs and to liberate people from different forms of oppression, etc. Well, that movement failed to even accomplish that. So a lot of people thought that movement was dead. Well, truth is that movement has simply changed forms, and it looks different a little bit today. We see many churches beginning to slip into this same trap once again with the emphasis, and the language that is used is social justice priorities that become invading into the church. And I want to be clear that Jesus is absolutely concerned with justice. Jesus absolutely is concerned with justice, and God's Word gives, gives, does give us the wisdom that we need for good public policy. But those who make so-called social justice the priority usually end up forsaking biblical definitions of justice and begin adopting worldly conceptions and ideas of justice instead. And so we, we hear these different directions that people have gone. There's the social justice movement. We can be uh, the fundamentalist movement. The pendulum swung so far back the other direction that the focus became only on teaching only to the neglect of anything because we don't, want to, we don't want it to look like we're engaged in the social gospel so we just stay away from anything of social help whatsoever. How do we find the right balance? Well, here, I believe Jesus shows us the way. Jesus Christ came preaching a particular message. Repent and believe in the gospel. That was his message, and that message was never divorced from his activity, that his activity was never divorced from that message. Jesus cares for people. He cares for their well-being. He wants them to be in a right relationship with the Father. He cares for their spiritual well-being. He, but He expresses His concern for them, His compassion upon them. He's concerned with their physical well-being as well. So when we see the activity of Jesus and we see the message that He brings, we too can see this and, and approach these things with a good and, and a proper balance as we think about caring for individuals' spiritual needs and their physical needs as well. We don't have to see this as a dichotomy, that it's either one or the other. Jesus certainly didn't live as if it was that way. And we don't have the ability ourselves to physically touch people and see them healed, right? We don't have that ability. I wish we did. That would be amazing, right? Well, we don't have that. But we do have the ability to care for people in other ways. And that can be a powerful, powerful testimony to the love of Christ and lead to tremendous opportunities for the gospel along the way. I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase. It's a little bit trite, uh, maybe even cliche-ish. That's a difficult thing to say. Uh, but people don't care what you know until they know that you care. All right? it's, it's a pithy saying. There's a lot of truth in the saying as well. 
One last thing to say about this, uh, this concept. The mistake of the social gospel was to make social action itself the gospel. And we must never make that mistake. We must never divorce our desire to help individuals, our desire to reach individuals and care for their physical needs. We must never divorce mercy ministry from the love and the tr- <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> From the love of the truth and helping people understand their need for the Savior. Right? These things have to go together. Right? If we do all this great social work and we, we help people be fed and be clothed and be warm and be dry and all these wonderful things, if we help them do all of that, but they, they still never hear the gospel of Christ and so they, we end up sending warm, fed, dry and clothed individuals to hell. But there's also the reality that if people are starving to death or freezing to death, etc., that they're not going to hear the gospel because they're already dead. So these things can go together. We must engage in these things at the same time. They, they, they can never be divorced from one another. Now realize that here we are, we're Pillar Fellowship, we're a tiny little church. There is just by practical reasons, there's going to be a limitation to what we can do. We would love to do so many great things, right? There's lots of needs within our community. We would love to be able to reach out and we just, we don't have the funding, we don't have the people to do all of that, right? But there are different little things that we can do along the way and I just encourage us to look for those opportunities, to see what we can do, where we can do along the way, but all the while bringing the gospel with us. That's the model that Jesus laid forth for us. And if I could just even give us a little sneak peek into next week, our sermon next week, there's going to be a moment where the disciples are going to come looking for Jesus and he's going to say, well, the disciples are going to say, hey, everyone's looking for you. Presumably they want more healing. And Jesus is going to say, let's go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for this is why I have come. Now, I don't want to preach next week's sermon this week. <laughs> but that's just, that, that's, it, it, it's all together, right? We can't separate these things apart. Jesus cares for people's physical needs, but he also is using that as an opportunity for proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And that's why he came. So I leave us with that challenge today. We see the compassion of our Savior. We see how he did not forsake people's physical needs as he sought to minister to their deeper spiritual need. So let that be a, a call for us to show compassion as well. Always pairing physical ministry with a proclamation of the gospel of Christ and always looking and submitting ourselves to the authority of the one who is over all. Let's close in prayer. Father, I, I thank you for this text and how it challenges us. Lord, I pray that, that we can have a healthy balance, Lord. Let us not be driven away, driven into these different extremes of, of giving everything into social action, that we neglect the gospel, of, of focusing so much on, on correct doctrine and teaching that we neglect meeting people's physical needs. Lord, if we see your word and we see the truth of it, if we are rightly handling the word of truth, that will lead us to serve others. So I pray that you would help us to faithfully live out, even as our core values state that we serve others. We have our core value of others-oriented service. 
selflessly serving others within the church and the community. I pray that you would help us, guide us, direct us, give us wisdom, Lord. Sometimes we don't even know how to do this or what this ought to look like. Give us the wisdom, give us the strength, and give us the ability to love and care for those around us, showing the love of Christ so that we may also tell them of your great love and your sacrifice upon that cross. That they may not just be healed or have their physical needs met, but their spiritual needs as well, which is truly the deeper need. Pray that we can accomplish these things by your grace, for your glory. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.